Lord, just reflecting on that, refrain from heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Lord, that phrase, Lord God Almighty, is so loaded. Um, you are called the Lord in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and yet your disciples address Jesus, the human being, as the Lord. And then Paul writes, where the Spirit is, there is peace because the Spirit is the Lord. Lord, just that one sentence, that refrain in heaven, announces the Trinity. There is no other name that should be uttered in that phrase when we're singing your praise, when we're singing about your majesty. So to say, worthy is the Lamb, would detract from your glory. Were the Lamb a created thing? Lord, thank you for being triune, for being three persons in one perfect, holy, and beautiful God. Lord, thank you for giving us songs to sing, to announce that, to remind us about your perfection, your glory, and your beauty. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. And we are very not. Lord, I pray that your churches here in the Antelope Valley, um, Lord, though we worship in different buildings at different times and different styles, Lord, we are your church all together. I pray for all of the churches here in the Antelope Valley this morning who are gathered to hear from your word, to hear about who Jesus is, to receive the blessing of hearing the gospel preached again and again. Lord, would you fit them with a special measure of your spirit to equip them for handling your word? And Lord, would you equip the saints to hear and to receive and to be blessed and to grow in grace? And so, Father, I want to pray for all the Bible-preaching churches in the Antelope Valley this morning, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they, they worship songs they sing or don't sing. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless your church and, uh, and show her your love here in the Antelope Valley. Would you show us your special love this morning as we hear from your word? Open it to us. Lord, I am not prepared. I am not uh, equipped. I'm not fit to preach your word. But Lord, you are. And so would you do that this morning? Preach to us from your word. Teach us who you are and cause us to lean on Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. So um, we've been in chapter 9. Really, chapter 9 is the story of Saul. Even though next week, the end of chapter 9 is going to be talking about Peter, chapter 9, just the bulk of it is about the story of Saul. And so we, we heard last week about Saul's conversion. What did it take to bring this man, this violent opposer of the way, to Jesus Christ? And so this week, we're going to hear the kind of tail end of that story, and we're going to hear about Saul's transition. So how did he move from being a a militant rabbi to being the man who would write most of the New Testament? What, What took place in that interim there? So as we watch through this, as we go through this last section, we're going to see um, three things, opposition, suspicion, and fruition. I got an alliteration out of it. I'm very proud of myself, but I had to pull out a really big word, fruition. What does fruition mean? Fruition just means bearing fruit. So there's opposition to Paul, there's suspicion of Paul, and then what we see is what has God done through all of this work, through what he's already started to do in Saul. He hasn't even completed it yet, and, and the fruit that, that that bears. So to begin with opposition, it starts out, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So he's still in Damascus. You remember where Damascus was? Up in Syria, just on the southern border of Syria, just, just above uh, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee up there. Um, he was heading to 
Damascus with letters from the high priest, and he was going to arrest anybody who belonged to the way. Anybody who was following Jesus, he was going to arrest them. That's where God met him and converted him. That's where he began to minister. As soon as he can regains his sight and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes through the synagogues preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Tremendous message for a Jew to say that a human being could be the Son of God in that way. That, that's a giant statement that he makes. And so that's where he's been. And then it says, when many days had passed, um, the Jews plotted to kill him. He's been meeting in the synagogues. He's been talking about this Jesus. The man who came to arrest people who talk about Jesus now has a plot to kill him. This is a different guy. Um, it says many days had passed. There's no specific time. You notice that, that Luke, in this case, leaves it very general. How many is many days? A lot. <laughs> That's what many days is. It's not two weeks. It's not seven months. It's not three years. It's just a lot of days. So Luke intentionally leaves this open for us. He doesn't nail it down, and, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, somehow their plot became known to Saul. Um, it's, I don't think it's hard to figure out how that became known to him because what they were doing is they were watching the gates day and night. So if you see these people hanging around the gates day and night, you get the, plot, the idea, they're probably coming after me. So it wasn't like you know, he had super secret spies going in or, or you know, Mission Impossible bugs in, in rooms or something. You could tell the buzz in the city was they're out to get Saul. Um, so they said that they were watching the gates. Now, who was watching the gates? I always pictured this as some shady-looking characters kind of, you know, with their hat down a little bit, maybe a cigarette in their hand, kind of watching, you know, looking everybody suspiciously. That's how I always pictured it. Maybe I watch TV too much. But um, actually, the, the, the truth of who is watching the city is a little bit more troubling. In context, the they would be the Jews, right? That was the immediate person that they were talking about. But what happens is when you look at what Paul, when he tells this story, he adds a little detail to it that, that flushes it out a little bit. In 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, he says, he's recounting his former life in that section. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. So it wasn't just the Jews. It was the governor, the person who was in charge, and he was appointed under the king, Aretas. So that's not just a couple of people hanging around the gate looking shady. This is they're shaking down people as they come and go through the city. So um, how does that work, though? Because who is this Aretas and why would he help the Jews? This is Damascus. It's a Gentile city. Um, there's some debate. It's a little bit fuzzy. There's a gap of time um, in the history of Damascus right around this period, of course, that we just haven't found much archaeological evidence. We don't have any coinage or any of that. But we do know that Aretas was a king in that area. Aretas was probably a, a name like a dynasty, like Caesar or Pharaoh. There wasn't one guy named Caesar. There were a bunch of people named Caesar. There wasn't one dude with the name of Pharaoh. There were a bunch. So it looks like Aretas is the same because there were Aretas numbers. So there were a handful of them. The one that we're probably talking about here is Aretas IV. And he ruled, in, he ruled Damascus. He ruled in Petra. Um, and he was part of this, this large Nabataean kingdom um, that came under Rome uh, before Christ. They'd come under Rome, but they still kind of like Judea, their kings. The uh, Nabataean empire still had their kings. And so there was, there was that going on. That still doesn't help me understand why would he help the Jews hunt down Saul? Well, there's one last little historical detail that I think kind of unlocks it. Uh, Eretus IV had a daughter who married Herod. 
So remember when we heard about John the Baptist confronting Herod, you're not allowed to marry your, your brother's wife? This is the woman that that Herod divorced to marry his brother's wife. And what happened is Artus actually went in and invaded Judea because of that. <laughs> you divorced my daughter, I'm attacking your kingdom. But uh, that idea that Artus would marry his daughter to a Jew, that might bring him kind of in alignment with some of the Jewish sympathies. So they might have an end to come to him and say, hey, we need you to arrest this guy. It's your city, he's causing trouble, you need to arrest him. So uh, I think that's how you reconcile 2 Corinthians and this with who was watching the gates. Well, the Jews were watching the gates, and so were the Damascus, Damascians. The people of Damascus were watching the gate also. Uh, so that's what's going on. Paul is meeting this kind of opposition. They're trying to get him. But the point is, this was not a small operation. This wasn't just a couple of people trying to find him in the streets. Uh, Paul's life is in serious danger at this point. He could easily be arrested. So what happens is he says, uh, Luke tells us that um, that the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So while they're watching the gates, he goes out the side and they lower him down in a basket. Uh, the, the word for, you know, you picture like a bread basket or, you know, a picnic basket and him hanging on the edge or something. The word there is probably speaking of a hamper, so a large basket, one that a man could fit into. And they lower him through an opening. Um, actually, it doesn't even have the word opening in the Greek. It just says lowered him through the wall. Um, but uh, when Paul is talking about it back in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped their hands. So guess what? A window is an opening. <laughs> a window is how you get through a wall. It's not like they knocked out bricks. So again, you know, these are kind of things where people might be a little finicky about, well, it doesn't say the exact same thing. It says the same thing. There's just two different people telling it in two different ways. So they let him down. They let him escape that way. Uh, through the wall, they drop him down outside, and he's able to escape from Damascus. Um, so this is the opposition that Paul is facing. Uh, why would they be so upset? Why would they be so opposed to him? Um, it's partly because what we heard in the previous chapter is they weren't able to contradict what he was saying. He proved, he proved to them that Jesus was the Son of God from the Scriptures. So he took the Old Testament and he showed them, this is why this is true. Uh, so really what, what's going on here is they should have listened to Saul. Saul was the perfect person to bring this message to the Jews in Damascus. He had all the credentials. He had everything going on. They should have listened to him. They should have listened to him because of who he was, what he saw, and what he said. So think about who he was. This Saul was not somebody coming in and pretending to be somebody else and then did a, a Christian um, bait and switch on him. Um, I'm going to tell you about this. Oh, look at that. I'm going to tell you about this. I'm going to tell you how to defeat these Christians. Oh, no, I'm going to tell you how to become one of them. All you've got to do is prove this. None of that. This man has got a proven track record. He arrested people, men and women, in Jerusalem and threw them in prison. He didn't fake it. When he was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't coming and pretending to be somebody else. He had a letter from the high priest saying, anybody you find, you can arrest and drag off. So if this man is coming, and everybody knew about it, because remember Ananias, when he saw the vision of the Lord, he said, but Lord, I heard about this guy. Look at what he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's coming to do it here. So his, his reputation preceded him to Damascus. They knew who this Saul was. So as he's coming, 
something happened. A man who's that vehemently opposed to the way, something major changes him. He doesn't just have a, a, a change of heart. He doesn't just decide, oh, maybe I should be nicer to people. Something major had to interrupt him to turn off that hatred, that opposition. So just based on who he is, this man Saul, they should have listened to him. You can't get a better witness. than That's, that's like the definition of hostile, a hostile witness. This is somebody who has been so opposed to it that they turn and become one. Remember last week I mentioned that uh, these two British lawyers decided that they hated Christianity. It didn't make any sense. It was totally fake. And so they were going to write books to, to show how fake it was. And when they got back together, when they'd written their two books, one of them said, ah, the resurrection's real. And the other one, yeah, Paul really was converted. So something happened to those guys. They didn't just wake up one morning and say, well, you know. So when, when you get somebody who's that opposed, who now believes that you have to ask, why, did, why this person? What happened to this person? So that's who he is was a great testimony to the truth of the way and what he saw. When he came and he talked about Jesus being the Lord, Jesus, or Saul saw the risen Jesus. He didn't have some, some fantastical vision about it. He was confronted on the road to Damascus by the resurrected Christ standing before him going, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He met the actual resurrected Jesus Christ. So what he saw changed who he was because he realized, wait a minute, this means Stephen was correct. He was right. This Jesus really is raised. Stephen's right. Jesus really is standing at the right hand of God in heaven. So what he saw was a huge testimony. Now, it's conceivable. Some people try to explain away the resurrection by looking at the apostles or the disciples at the time and saying, you know, they so were devastated by the death of Jesus, they really wished that, that it hadn't happened. And so there's this huge bias towards wanting Jesus to be really alive. And so somebody could have a vision or a dream or a waking dream and, and think of Jesus as being alive, and everybody would jump on board with that and be so bent towards that because they really loved him and they really wanted him to be the Messiah that there really wasn't a resurrection. It just appeared like it. They just were all deluded because they so wanted that. Saul comes along and goes, yeah, but. Can you think of anybody who didn't want Jesus to be resurrected more than Saul? Saul is so mad that Jesus is resurrected, he's arresting people who are saying he is. So it's not like he's on the road to Damascus going, oh, I wish Jesus was alive. Oh, look, there he is. He's on the road to Damascus going, I want Jesus to be dead. I want his disciples to be dead. I want this movement to be dead. I want it to be all over with. Oh, my gosh, look, there's Jesus. Because of what Saul saw, it changed his life. And Saul is this great testimony to put to bed that idea that it was a delusion. He, could, he wouldn't have had that delusion. It just would not have happened. This Jesus is actually resurrected. So who he was, was this violent oppressor. What he saw was the actual risen Christ. And then what he said should have really cinched it all together. As he goes around to the synagogues talking to people, and he's converted to this risen Christ, he tells them, shows them from Scripture, this is who this Jesus is. This must be who this Jesus is. Now, remember his credentials, right? He was, he was rising up in Judaism above his peers. He stuttered under Gamaliel, a man who was actually quoted in the, in the, uh, the, the Tanaka, not the Tanaka, uh, the Talmud, the, the Jewish writings. This, this guy has got credentials. 
So they should stop and listen to him, first of all, because of his credentials within Judaism, but then also because he presented it from the scriptures. He said, this is what the word of God says, and look at how Jesus fulfills every single one of these. So he's got the teaching credentials. He's got the scriptures behind him. They should have stopped and listened to him. And that idea of who he was and what he saw should have opened their eyes and stopped him in their tracks and went, now wait a minute. We can't dismiss this man out of hand. And yet, and yet, the response was, we've got to kill him. We can't answer him. We can't contradict him. We can't prove him wrong from scripture, so he must die. How hard must a human heart be to get to that point? It's not uncommon. That's what happened with Jesus. They looked Jesus right in the face. They saw he did miracles. They saw he raised people from the dead. They heard him announce that if you have seen God, you have seen me. Before Abraham was, I am. He announces all of these things to him. And instead of bowing down in worship, their response is, well, he must die. That's how hard a human heart can be. So this is the problem that, that Saul is facing as he's in Damascus, is there is violent opposition to him. So violent, he has to be lowered in a basket, out a window, so that he can escape from Damascus, so that he can get away. Um, it, it's that intense. This is not something that um, Saul can shrink away from, that he can just easily explain. This is how much knowing the risen Christ is worth, is my life is threatened. And it's worth sticking around. Now, notice he didn't charge out to the front gate and announce Jesus is the risen Savior and then get slaughtered. Um, Stephen boldly proclaimed. He, he was arrested. He boldly proclaimed again, and he was executed. So there's, there's various ways to approach this boldness. Sometimes the boldness means standing up in a crowd and, and just shouting out the truth and taking your, your lumps. That's really a bad way to say that because he was stoned to death. And then there's sometimes where you boldly announce, you receive opposition, and it's time to escape. The Lord makes that decision. We don't. So as the Lord leads us. And the way that the Lord led Saul was through the church. The other disciples grabbed him, stuffed him in a basket, and, helped, and shoved him out the window. Um, that was how lo the Lord communicated to Saul, I'm not done with you yet. You've got to stand before kings and, and all the uh, children of Israel and before the Gentiles before I'm done. So that was Saul's opposition, and it pushes him out of Damascus. Then there's suspicion. So he comes to Jerusalem, and he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. So he, he leaves Damascus, and he heads to Jerusalem. I'm not exactly, I've been trying to figure this out. Why didn't he just go to Tarsus, where he was from, go home? Instead, he heads right back to Jerusalem where he knows the chief priest is really going to be mad at him. You were supposed to go arrest him, and now you're preaching them? And so he goes to Jerusalem, and the church won't even accept him. There's suspicion of who he is. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. He'd been so violently opposed that they couldn't believe it. So this trip to Jerusalem actually presents a little bit of a problem uh, New Testament-wise. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is recounting his, his life, his conversion. And in, in chapter 2, he says he was converted at Damascus, then he went to Arabia, then he returned to Damascus, and then three years later went to Jerusalem. And then from there, he went to Syria and Cilicia. And then he was unknown to the church in Judea. So some people have a hard time reconciling this 
his, what he says in Galatians 2 with what we've just read from Luke in, in Acts chapter 9. Um, I don't think really there's that big of a need to reconcile these. So let's go with, with uh, Galatians 2. He was converted at Damascus. Does that agree with Acts? Yes, check mark. Okay, no problem. Um, he went to Arabia. Does that disagree with Acts? Doesn't say. Remember after many days? What happened in them many days? We don't know. And how long was he in Arabia? Generally, people think three years because he mentions three years later I went to Jerusalem. I don't think he was in, Jer in Arabia for three years. He could have been in Arabia for one year. So he's converted. He preaches in the synagogues. He goes to Arabia to kind of reflect. Who knows? We don't know what he did, so I'm theorizing here. So if you don't agree with me, that's perfectly fine. Correct me later. He may have gone to Judea or to Arabia to, to sit alone and just meditate and read the scriptures again and go, I've got a lot of learning to redo. He could have gone for business. He could have gone for any number of reasons. He could have been there for three weeks or you know three years. We don't know. But if we're trying to reconcile 9 and 2, X9 and Galatians 2, during that time period, he went off to Arabia and he came back. And when he returns, then he starts preaching and the, the Jews get really mad at him because now he's, he's honed his craft. He has really studied those scriptures out. He's got them all laid out. He's understood exactly what, what the, uh, the, all of the Bible is saying. And now he goes in and it really makes him mad because he, he doesn't have any of those moments where he goes, gee, I don't know. He, he continues to point to the scripture. So why wouldn't Luke mention the trip to Arabia? Because it's not important. It distracts from the story. This is a focus on Saul's conversion. So it's possible that he went off to Arabia and came back, and, and Luke just didn't mention it because it doesn't matter. It's not important to the part that, that Luke is telling. So that's a possibility. Um, and then um, it says that he visited the churches in Jerusalem, but in Acts 2, he says he didn't meet with all of the apostles, but it doesn't say he didn't meet with any of the disciples. He said he met with Cephas, and with James, the brother of the Lord, and he didn't meet with any of the other apostles. Well, maybe the other apostles were out traveling or doing something else. So it doesn't really violate what it says here, that he was um, uh, going in and out amongst the church in, uh, in Judea. So again, it, it's, it's not impossible to put all this together. Um, the next thing it says is that he went to Syria and Cilicia. Uh, does that agree with Acts chapter 9? Guess where Tarsus is? You got one guess. Cilicia? Yep, exactly. Guess where um, Caesarea is? Okay, that's in Judea. I faked you. But the point is, it totally agrees with what he said in 2. It's just in 2, in, in Genesis 2, or uh, Genesis, in Galatians 2, he gives a little more detail. He tells it a little bit differently than Luke is. So Luke has got his, his purpose in saying this. This is one of those problems where if you demand too much from biblical inerrancy, you get into trouble because then the Bible is no longer inerrant. If it could only go the way Luke said it and no details were left out, that's too firm of a biblical inerrancy. It's not what Luke intended either, by the way. And then you wind up with problems where you can't reconcile. So we have to hold biblical inerrancy and say, well, Luke wrote what he wrote without error, without mistake. He wrote exactly what the Lord wanted him to, but it wasn't every minute detail of everything that happened. So that's how I think we can reconcile those two. The problem is when he gets to uh, Jerusalem, the saints don't believe that he's a disciple. They're terrified, uh, terrified of this man, and justifiably so. What has he done to those poor saints in Jerusalem? He's the one who showed up, kicked the door in, grabbed him, and drug him off to prison. 
And now all of a sudden he shows up and we're supposed to welcome him? We're supposed to just throw our arms open and say, yeah, welcome in? It, it's, a, it's a real trial for them to do that. It's really hard for them to believe because trust is earned. And once you burn trust, it takes a long time to get that burnt back. It, it takes moments to, to lose trust, to burn that, 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 uh, that credit. But it takes a long time to rebuild it. It, it. Trust is based on a relationship, and relationships take time. They just do. So I don't believe for a second that Saul showed up and said, Hi, I'm here, expecting everybody to just throw their arms around him and sing Kumbaya. I think he went to Jerusalem knowing I know what I have to do. I persecuted these poor people. I have to go make amends with them. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ, and I owe them. And so I think that's probably why he headed to Jerusalem. So he gets there, and he's got a problem. Nobody believes him. Um, mentions Barnabas. It says that uh, Barnabas instead took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So I'm guessing Barnabas must have been in Damascus. He, he must have, or at least he knew of the story credibly because he comes and recounts it to the apostles saying, you got to accept him. Look what he's been doing. Look who he is. So this Barnabas did trust Saul. He must have spent time with him. He must have seen the change in character in this man. And he trusts him, and he brings him to the church, and he introduces him. The last time we heard about Barnabas was in chapter 4. He, gave, he sold some property and gave it to the, the apostles, and then right after that, Ananias and Sapphira. So that was the last we heard of him. Now he shows up again. Um, we'll hear him again in chapter 11. And guess what he does in chapter 11? He heads off to Tarsus to go get Saul, right where he, we left him. At this chapter, we left him in Tarsus. Barnabas goes and gets him. Barnabas has a special attention, this special friendship with Saul, which we'll hear more about as we go through Acts. So it's Saul who comes in and says, you guys, really, you can trust him. You should hear the man preach. He, as, fire, he, as fiery as he was in persecuting us, he's just like that for Jesus now. He met the Lord on the road. And so they, they begin to accept him. They kind of begin to turn. Um, so it says in verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. Um, does that mean he just kind of came and went? <laughs> like he would come in and go out, step in the door, hi, I'm here, leave. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast that Luke wrote it that way because what could he not do in Damascus? He could not go in and out. They were watching the gates. They were, they were out to kill him. But now it says he went in and out. It's a, it's a, uh, a way of saying he was with us. It's a term that comes up a couple of times in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament as well. We want a king who will come in and go out before us. David was our king. He went in and came out before us. Um, that means he was with us. He, he dwelt with us. So it's talking about that relationship that's been restored. And it probably just means he lived with us. He was, he was one of us. So he went in and out uh, with the church, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So you bump into Paul. You bump into Saul, and you know what you get? A sermon. The guy just breathed Jesus Christ at this point. You, you couldn't bump into him. You couldn't meet him in the market without, in a couple of minutes, hearing about Jesus. He is preaching boldly, and he's speaking, and he's di disputing with the Hellenists. The Hellenists, again, remember we heard about them in, in um, a previous chapter about the Hellenists were complaining because the uh, Hebrews were receiving 
food for their widows before the Hellenists were. Um, so there's this, this internal tension between the Hellenists and the Hebrew speakers. Um, and it's in, so far what we've seen is it's been the Hellenists largely in opposition to Saul. Because guess who would be at Damascus? Hellenists, people, Jews who spoke Greek as their first language. Um, they are the ones who are primarily in opposition to him. And the Hebrew leaders, the Hebrew-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, that leadership is opposed to him. The common people in Judea seem to be favorably disposed towards the truth. And that's why we saw thousands come to believe in Jesus. But, it's always a but here, um, but it's not just the Hellenists. It's not like it was only the Hellenistic Jews who opposed him. And I say that because in chapter 21, Paul will be arrested in the, in the temple. And as they're dragging him off, he stops and he turns and he addresses the crowd in Hebrew. It says specifically he addressed him in Hebrew. So even the Hebrew Jews, at the Hebrew-speaking Jews at that point are opposed to Paul. But in this case, it's the Hellenists. Why the Hellenists? Why are we picking on those poor people? Well, I think part of it is because Saul himself is a Hellenist. He's from Tarsus. Tarsus is, you remember where Damascus was, way up? He comes down to Jerusalem. They send him off to Caesarea, which is kind of in the northern section of uh, Judea. But when he goes to Tarsus, that's up and around and into Turkey. So that's in a, in a very, um, right up in that corner of the Mediterranean, right by Turkey. That's a Hellenistic area. That's a place that they spoke uh, Greek primarily. So the problem here is he's, his own people are opposing him. It's not just the Jews. It's the Hellenistic Jews that are opposing him. And so maybe that's the attraction is, is they're like, but we know you and, and you can't say these things. So he's disputing with them. He, they're arguing about this Jesus and, and who he really is. Um, and it says again, they were seeking to kill him. So Saul's got this great track record. He goes to Damascus, they try to kill him. So he goes to Jerusalem, they try to kill him. Um, there is an opposition to the good news of Jesus Christ among some people. And it's not particularly welcome in some groups. Why is that? Why would they be so opposed to Saul preaching this good news? His own kind of Jew, his own particular brand of Judaism, if you would, the Greek speakers. Why would they be so violently opposed to him? Why would the church be so suspicious of him at first that they, they don't want him around? They don't believe that he's actually one of them. I think I've said this before, it comes down to basically human beings are tribal. We are biased toward our group. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not critiquing humanity for this. Um, we have since, uh, look back in the, in the Old Testament, how was Israel grouped? In tribes. So we've always been a tribal people. There's always some identity that we share to make us our group. And we're inherently then suspicious of those outside our group. So the, the Christians in Jerusalem are sharing everything together. We heard about that earlier. They were sharing everything in common. They would sell, sell things, sell their property, and give the money to the church so that they could hold it all together. And anybody who had any need, the church met, met it. That was their tribe. It was their group. They trusted each other. They listened to each other. And so now Saul comes along and he wants to join that tribe. And there's an immediate, inherent suspicion because we need to be guarding those, those lines. We need to make sure 
that when somebody joins us, that they're joining us. And, and with Saul, it didn't look good. And the same thing goes with these Hellenistic Jews. They look at, at Saul now and they say, you used to be part of our tribe, but you're using language now that we're not using. You're speaking about this Jesus in a way that we wouldn't speak about this Jesus. So now he's violated the tribal norms. And they're suspicious of him. So Saul is in this no man's land as he goes to Jerusalem. He has not yet been welcomed by the church, and he is being opposed by his own people. And, and, and he just is, is working to try to get through this. So what keeps him going? What keeps him standing? Why would he continue to knock on the church's door and say, no, really, I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus now? Why would he turn to his own people who see him as a traitor and say, no, you guys, listen, Jesus really is the Christ. I, I think for Saul, it was the same thing that kept Stephen going. It was the same thing that kept the church going. It was this vision of the risen Christ. It, it was not some fantasy. He actually saw Jesus Christ alive on the road to Damascus. He didn't see Jesus as in some fog. He saw him in heaven. That was that miraculous light shining around, just like Stephen peered into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's that kind of a view of who Jesus is, that he really is raised, that can empower you to withstand that kind of oppression, that kind of opposition, that kind of suspicion. That's what empowers you to continue on, is to say, I know what this, the situation around me feels like. I know what it looks like but I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that Jesus is physically standing in heaven even now. And I know there's a day he's coming back for me. That's what equips you for that. That's what keeps you going. So here's a question. What is my tribe? We're tribal. We're suspicious of those outside the tribe. We trust those inside the tribe. So what is my tribe? I'm asking you to ask yourself. I'm not asking you what my tribe is. Um, that's my business. So what is your tribe? Is it your church or your small group? Um, only those you live with? Is it a, is it a denomination? Um, only those you align with. We, we, we align this way. So that's my tribe, and I'm suspicious of anybody else. Does it get worse? Is it some narrow theological view? Um, I have this particular uh, set of doctrines, and, and if you don't agree with them, as I articulate them, you're not part of my tribe. Only those you agree with. And here's the other thing. What would it take to welcome somebody else into your tribe? What would it, what would it take you to say, I understand who my tribe is, and this person is, is asking to belong. What would it take for you to welcome them? What would it take for you to welcome a totally separate tribe to join with you? these two tribes to live in harmony together. What would that take? That's, that's what Saul is, is facing here, is the, the church up to this point has been largely Jewish and has been uh, fairly insular. There's a little division because we've got Hellenists and Hebrew speakers, but generally we know who we are. And now this Saul is coming in. It's going to disrupt things. He's going to be different. He's, he's caused us problems. Oh, they have no idea how different it's going to be. Because what the rest of Acts is going to do, it's going to bring those dirty Gentiles in. Those Gentiles that we've always, they've been the other tribe. They couldn't be any more other. And this Saul, who we've welcomed, now he's going to bring those Gentiles in. What about the purity of the church? 
What about the authenticity of the church? He's going to welcome these outsiders in. And so that's one of the struggles through the New Testament is how to fit together Jew and Gentile who have historically been separated. And that's the merging of the two tribes. We don't face that so much now because it's been 2,000 years. I think we kind of got used to it. But we still have tribal lines in other places. And that's why I ask, who's your tribe? And what would it take to welcome somebody into it? What would it take to welcome another tribe? It's a good question to reflect on. It's a good question to think about is, is there something that I would have to give up? Is there something I shouldn't give up? Should I maintain these, bar these uh, um, barricades, these borders? Um, how is that going to work? Where is that going to look like? So this is just tipping us toward Saul's ministry in the future, kind of getting us ready for that. I think Luke is doing a lot of getting us ready as we're going through these early chapters of Acts because of the explosive growth of the Gentiles, which we're not there yet. But, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's coming. It's going to happen. So then the, the section ends on, um, on a really positive note, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's this, this beautiful bow tie at the end that kind of sums up all that's happened so far. Uh, as a matter of fact, Daryl Bach, one of the really good commentators on, um, on Luke and Acts, I love the way he stated this. He says, these summaries, these, these kind of summary statements in Acts, these summaries function like triumphant choral refrains in the book as they ring out with joy over what God is doing. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about that? These things happen a number of times throughout the book of Acts. Chapter 6, the one we just seen, chapter 12, chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 28. Luke will say similar things like this. The church was growing. The disciples were at peace. The word of God increased. Those kinds of things. And they just kind of echo throughout the book of Acts. And it's a reminder of opposition, suspicion, you know, all of that stuff. God is still working. He's still doing something. And his church continues to grow and continues to grow and continues to spread across the earth. So this is really good news. This, this last little refrain is really great news. And so let's peel it back a little bit because it, you kind of just breeze through it and go, oh, yeah, it's a summary statement next. But if you peel it back a little bit, it, it really, the impact, I think, the emotional impact of it kind of grows because you think about what was just said. So look at what, he's, what Lucas said in this summary, where the church has spread. Where did it start? It started in Acts chapter 2 in an upper room hiding until the Holy Spirit showed up and then they bust out into the streets and it's in Jerusalem and the disciples are meeting in, in houses and it's pretty much confined to Jerusalem and then it begins to go, you know, some cities outside. But listen to what Luke says here. He says that the church throughout Judea, throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria, the church has spread from just Jerusalem it's now spread through all of Judea. It's spread into Samaria. It's spread into um, Galilee. We haven't even heard about anything from Galilee yet. Had he not mentioned it, we wouldn't know it was there. But this is how the church is continuing to grow. God is working to grow his church. But let's take a little bit more. It's not just those areas. Saul was going to Damascus to arrest who? people who held to the way. The church has spread beyond Galilee. Now it's north of Galilee. It's in Damascus. It's continuing to spread. And what we'll see is that Saul, when he leaves Jerusalem, he heads off to Caesarea and then up to Tarsus. So Caesarea, we've been to Caesarea before. Philip went there. 
The church has spread to Caesarea. It's now, with Saul going to Tarsus, going home, the church is now spread into Tarsus. So what, what we see in this beautiful summary is that it's the churches in, um, in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria who have peace, but the church is spreading throughout all of these places. Why those three places? Why didn't Luke do what I just did? We're, we're going to have an editorial meeting later, and I'll have them fix it at some point in the future. But, I mean, why only those three places? Because those were the places that Saul was troubling. Those were the places that Saul was going and arresting people. Those were the ones that were seeing the violent, uh, violent uh, opposition of Saul. And what does the, the uh, thing say about those places? They had peace and were being built up. They didn't have peace before, and they were being torn down as he was pulling people out of houses and running them into jail. The word that was used to describe what he was doing to the church was basically tearing it down, destroying it. And now, with the conversion of Saul, the church has peace. And the church doesn't just sit in peace and not do anything. The church is multiplying. It's continuing to grow. So what we see in this little summary, as, as Luke is wrapping up Saul's story, is he's telling us, God was aware of what was happening to his church. He reached out for his church and he took the violent oppressor and he turned him around so that this man would no longer kill the church, but would actually be instrumental in building up the church. This wasn't Saul's idea. Was this Saul's plan all along? Uh, this is going to be great. I'm going to turn into a Christian at some point. I can't wait. It was never his plan. This was God's sovereign choice in Saul's life. He is a chosen instrument we heard last week. And this is what it looks like when God chooses an instrument and turns that instrument and turns him into that. The church has peace and is multiplied. It's a beautiful summary of all that's been going on. And they're walking in the fear of the Lord. Why would they be afraid? He's just captured their greatest oppressor. Why should they have fear? Shouldn't they be just, I thought they had peace. How can you have peace and fear at the same time? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is unique. It's, it's extraordinarily different. It's not like any other fear that you experience. Lisa and I were in an accident. We got T-boned in an intersection. And so there's a little bit of fear when we come to an intersection. Always kind of a suspicious eye. A suspicious eye. I think that's the key. To have the fear of the Lord is not to have a suspicious eye. But it is to be watching out and saying, Lord, what are you doing? It is to have that respect. So the fear of the Lord is in a very different category than fear of dark, fear of spiders, fear of getting T-boned again. It's a different category of fear, and that's what they're walking in, is this awesome respect. Lord, you took our number one opponent, and you turned him on his heel, and now he's preaching the Lord. That is both exhilarating and it's a little bit frightening because you are so powerful. It is amazing to watch you work, Lord. And so let's, let's see what else he does. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell his people he was going to send to them? A comforter. And it didn't mean a nice warm blanket. He was sending them his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to God's people and he comforts them. He reminds us of what God has said in the scripture. He confirms to us that we have received the guarantee of the inheritance that we have coming. The Holy Spirit is the seal. He's the guarantee. He's the one who will promise that we are going to be made to all the way perfect. We'll make it to the end. We will be with the Lord in the end. And that's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through each other as he equips us to serve and to ministry. 
And so through each other, through our life together, we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing the multiple ways he does it. It's not just one thing. He works in numerous ways to bring us comfort. So the Christian life, as we live it now, is still a life on earth. We didn't, you know, transport up to the mothership as soon as we became believers. Matter of fact, I woke up the next morning and put on the same pants and, and shaved and did everything pretty much the same way. Life remains life on earth. It remains troublesome. It remains a problem. You still have opposition. You still have difficulties, even though you're a believer. It didn't change fundamentally. What changed was looking towards the future and saying, when this life is over. What changed was, why am I taking these lumps now to, I can take these lumps. This isn't that bad. This is the life Jesus has called me to. The, what has changed is that vision that we have of Jesus standing beside God in heaven, the resurrected Christ standing to welcome us. That's fundamentally what changes. And because of that vision, our approach to life changes, our attitude towards sin changes, our desire for holiness changes, our, our understanding of what's right and what's wrong changes. So our life does change. It did change. But it doesn't look materially different. It, but it fundamentally is. So that's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, is to have these assurances married to us, brought to us, sealed to us by this Holy Spirit. And the incredible thing to think is that God turned Saul's heart. So when you're praying for the persecuted church around the world, when you think about the church in um, Saudi Arabia or some of the other Muslim countries, Iraq, Iran, Syria, think about, God, could you find a Saul in there? Could you find in ISIS someone who shoots and who kills Christians? Could you find a Saul in there and turn his heart? He did it before. Saul of Tarsus was, was wanting to kill Christians. He wanted to arrest them and imprison them. He could do it again in ISIS. He could do it again in any terror group. Any violent person, he can do that. And you know how you know that to be true? Because he did it to you. He turned your heart. There's nobody beyond his grasp. There's nobody he can't reach if he determines that's the right course for that person. So as you're praying for the church around the world and you think about this verse about walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and you think about those who aren't experiencing peace, pray, Lord, would you find a Saul in that group and turn him and see if you can't end that violence and strengthen the church the way you did here in Jerusalem. It's not a bad vision. It's not a bad thing. And, you know, when Jesus said, if you pray according to my will, whatever you ask will be done, you know that's his will. It, well, it's written here. Let's do it this way. It's written here. You know it's his will. You can't ask for a better thing. So pray and ask that God would do those things. That's the lesson of Saul. Saul now will disappear for two chapters. We won't see him again until chapter 11. Um, we have some important things to do. Where he's at is he's up in Tarsus doing whatever Saul does in Tarsus. And we'll catch back up with him. So ne next week we'll, we'll catch up with Peter with a very important thing that happens with Peter. It's a, it's a longer story, a um, couple of chapters worth, and it's repeated. So it'll be interesting. I can't wait to preach that one because I'm not sure what it's going to look like. But in the meantime, that's the end of Saul's story for the moment. It'll pick up again. 
So let's pray. Lord, um, I pray for your church's uh, tribalism, our, our view of, of who we are and what we mean by the word we. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, we would be suspicious of those who bear suspicion, but not unchanging in our suspicion. Lord, that we would welcome those who need to be welcomed after we have vetted them, after we've checked them out and made sure that they're authentic. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't have too narrow of a view personally as far as who our tribe is. Um, Lord, our tribe is who you have called to be your own. And so may we set our definitions based on what you say. Um, and Lord, that doesn't obliterate borders. It doesn't obliterate truth. It doesn't obliterate um, necessary divisions. Um, Lord, you have called people to yourself to be disciples of you. And so we want to be very careful to be in tribe with those who are your disciples. Um, those who need correction and rebuke, correcting and rebuking. Um, those who need to correct and rebuke us, may we be open to that. But Lord, I pray that as uh, we look to Saul, we see his, his journey to Jerusalem and then on to Tarsus. Lord, may we learn to be careful but welcoming. And Lord, I pray most importantly for especially your church in, in, um, here at this building and throughout the Antelope Valley, um, in Lancaster and Palmdale and Little Rock, uh, all throughout the Antelope Valley. Lord, may they experience the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. May they have peace and be multiplied. Lord, do those things in and among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.